Okay, that was a close call. I almost didn't record the audio um, coming out of my microphone into my other thing. So that was a close catch. Okay, so somebody wanted to know. Um, okay, so I just saw that um, if I get out of this screen on my phone, it pauses the Instagram live. So I might have to do that every now and then to go hit my Q&A. So if I do that and it screws up the phone, people, I apologize. So somebody wanted to know why I um, am competing in a bodybuilding competition. And I want to take one moment and just explain exactly what this Monday Night Live stream is because it's only the third episode. And I'm sure some of you know what's going on and some of you don't. Maybe some of you don't even give a shit. That's fine too. So... I was doing the regular podcast and I, I used to do, okay, well, let's even go back up further. The first like 25 episodes of my podcast were just me talking into a microphone for an hour straight, primarily because I didn't even think anybody would want to come on the podcast. And because I didn't have any history or any, you know, stats or anything to make me you know, when you want, when you invite somebody on a podcast, you want to think like, I'm giving you something worthwhile. Like I, I'm not just asking something from you. I'm actually giving something to you. And in order to give something to someone via a podcast, you need to have an audience. And obviously when I just started the thing, I didn't have, I didn't have an audience. So so I had to build an audience and I did that through like tech reviews and I would just talk into the microphone for, for a week or for an hour each week. And I thought it would be interesting to talk about the shit that was going on in my life, whether that was bodybuilding, training for hunts, deciding what gear to buy, whatever, just whatever random shit I thought people might find interesting. Now, the benefit of that was quite a few people were interested in it. And, and people who were like me and interested in the same things I am found it very beneficial to like learn from my mistakes or hear exactly what I was testing out that week or what type of, you know, supplements or PEDs or anything. And I'm pretty open on this podcast. So people, some people really liked that. Then it kind of got big enough that I felt comfortable bringing on guests. So then I started bringing on guests and some people really liked that. And then we kind of had like two camps, like the people who liked the personal shit and the people who liked the guests. And there was a little bit of overlap between those two groups as well. So then what I started to try and do was like every other podcast, I would do a solo cast where I focused more on gear reviews and I, then I would do, and, and my personal updates, and then I would do an interview where I would try and find somebody interesting and, and having them on. There was a couple, and that worked okay for a while, but the problem was there was so many interesting people, or at least interesting to me, that I wanted to have on the podcast that I was like, this isn't really working out because then it turned into two interviews to one update to four interviews to one update. And I'm like, ah, okay, that's not, that's not really working out either. So um, then I was like, I'll do, I'll do, here was the other learning. I was doing these really intense tech kind of reviews on the podcast. And here's the deal. The YouTube algorithm kind of hates podcasts. Well, it certainly doesn't uh, encourage or promote 
like smaller podcasts like mine. If you're a giant, you know, like Fuad in the bodybuilding world and you put up a podcast, yeah, absolutely, you're good to go. But as far as organic growth for long form content, YouTube is not great. So I would do these really great technical reviews in the middle of this like one hour podcast and nobody would see it on YouTube because that's just the way the algorithm is is written. And then I came to realize, okay, shit, there's a third group of thing. There's a, a third family of content here that I need to put up independently. And that is technical reviews and, and gear reviews. And that needs to be its own short form YouTube content. So now we have interviews with interesting people, my kind of personal updates and experiments, and I'm going to throw Q and A's in there. That's two groups. And then the third group is these technical reviews and kind of gear reviews and all that kind of stuff. So then ultimately I decided to do this experiment of this Monday night live stream. So here's how everything is going to get handled. The main podcast is going to be just interesting people being interviewed about hunting. The technical gear reviews are going to be handled in like 12 to 15 minute YouTube videos that actually do pretty well on YouTube because that's really the only type of content YouTube gives a shit about natively. And then the Q&As and the personal updates were going to be handled on this Monday Night Live stream. And my ultimate goal for the Monday Night Live stream, just like with the other podcast, is I want to build it up big enough where enough people are watching that I can have friends come on here. This is like what I'm hoping to build into like a more relaxed, like bullshit podcast. Because I don't mind the hunting bullshit podcast, but I also really like when people have very educated or experienced or interesting people on and you actually expend the energy to conduct or facilitate a legitimate interview. Like I really like listening to that. So I think there's room for that. And then there's also room for like the hunt camp bullshit, the same type of you know, fellowship that you would have if you if you went away to hunt camp and it's like the type of shit you're doing around the fire at night or on the couches or whatever. And it's just, you know, the boys and the girls too sitting around bullshitting at camp. I also want a podcast that's kind of focused just on that. So the idea with the Monday Night Live stream is that I'll have one or two guests come on with me and we'll just shoot the shit, hang out, find out what's going on with those guys just like I do my own personal updates, we'll do personal updates with them. And then we'll all kind of jointly answer questions so that it's a bit more like there's lots of people who know more than I do. And it's like, I try and keep this shit entertaining, but I'm sure listening to me drivel on about which archery release you should use is not the most entertaining thing in the world. And that we could, we could keep it fresh by having, you know, more voices in on that conversation. So that's, eventually where we want to go. Happy family day to you too, man. Happy family day to everybody. I actually am pretty proud of myself. I own my own business and normally with stats, I just treat them like another working day, but I really took today and it was a family day. Took my daughter out to visit my mother. We all went out to White Rock. 
went and got some Tim Hortons, walked out on the pier. Yeah, it was really nice and I really enjoyed it and we had a great day. Um, so anyways, with all that being said, the question that I'm going to kick off tonight with is why did you decide to compete in a bodybuilding competition? And then that's going to lead into this other kind of thing that's been kind of annoying me lately or this question I've been getting that I think I can help shed some light on for people. Okay, so there's two reasons why I decided to do a bodybuilding competition. Um, We'll start with like, okay, there's three reasons. We'll start with the vain one, then we'll get into the fear-based one, then we'll get into what I think is like the real reason. The vain one is I've never been like a shredded dude in my life. So I I wanted to at least once before I fucking kick in the can, I'm already 43, before I get so old that it's just just never going to happen. And here's the other thing. I've wanted to do it since my 20s. I've been lifting weights since my 20s. I've wanted to do a competition since my 20s. But just with life and everything else, I've always worked in the forestry sector. Having like multiple contiguous years where I could train at a gym consistently has just always eluded me. Like I'd get six to nine months, start making some progress, and then boom, I'd be off to camp and I'd work 10 and fours for the next eight months. And it's like, well, now you're screwed. And then you kind of start back again. So that always kept happening. And I was finally at a place in my life where I had the money, the time, and the like the resources or the extra energy that I could just dedicate fully to this thing. So one, I've always wanted to do it. Two, I've always wanted to get like completely inside out shredded just because I thought that was like an interesting goal to have. Um, three, it kind of terrified me. I'm not going to be honest. Like the idea of getting in my fucking underwear on a stage in front of a room full of people terrifies me. And that alone is like, as soon as I feel, I don't know what everybody else is like, but as soon as I feel that like fear is an inhibiting my action in some regard, I'm like, fuck that. Now I got to do it. Like as soon as I feel that I'm afraid of something, it's almost like my like little reptile brain kicks in and I don't have a choice now. Like I almost don't like to admit that I'm afraid of stuff because then I know I'm going to have to go do it just to prove to myself that I'm not afraid of it. So that fear thing kicks in and then I got to do it. But all of those are kind of like 10 to 15% reasons. Here's the, here's the real reason is that when I was in my early twenties in lifting and, you know, watching videos of guys like Cutler and Coleman go through prep and like listening to how savage the restrictions were and like they were just pulling themselves through life. Like it was complete, utter fucking torture. For some reason, I'm drawn to stuff like that. It's the same reason I like solo wilderness hunts. People always ask like, how do you force yourself to get through that? And it's like, there is no forcing. It's like, I legitimately enjoy seeing what I'm capable of before psychologically I just want to break. And the idea of a bodybuilding competition in a way is like that in its purest form. Like it's the ultimate restriction. And it's like, because here's the thing with a bodybuilding competition, like the food is everywhere. 
it, it, it's only your willpower that's forcing you to maintain discipline. Whereas at least with a solar wilderness hunt, once you're out there, there's this barrier to exit. Like you're less likely to quit because you have to take such drastic action to quit. It's easy to talk yourself out of quitting before you actually quit. Whereas in a bodybuilding show, like I got a six-year-old kid upstairs. Like if you don't think there's a fucking box of Oreos in my house at all times, like there's just, there's like fruit gushers and Oreos and like all kinds of random shit upstairs right now. Um, and the only thing that stops me from, from cheating on my diet or failing at this goal is my own discipline. So it's almost like this exercise in how much discipline do you really have? Like, what are you actually made of? Like when you put your mind to something, how far are you able to go before you break or cheat or allow, you know, some type of influence to taint the experience for you? And I like I get I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about that. I've always had food issues. I like binging on food. I like cheat days. I like eating whole pizzas. And the idea of having this like really strong food restriction and, and only my discipline to stick to that, like it it makes me somewhat anxious because I'm worried about it. I don't know if I'm capable of it. So, anyways, long, long story longer than it fucking needed to be. Those are the reasons that I, that I wanted to compete in a bodybuilding show, partially some just vain physique reasons. I wanted to see what, how good I could actually physically look. And then two, it's more like about confronting my own demons and seeing what I'm capable of on a psychological level, but manifest itself on a, in a physical plane. Okay, so that's the answer to that question. Now, here's what's more interesting to me. Like three or four people have DM'd me in the last, let's say, week and a half, all to ask the same question. Either, how come I'm not getting big enough or how come I'm not getting small enough? Which is to say, I want to get jacked. I'm eating a shitload of food, but I'm not getting any bigger. Or I want to get ripped and I'm restricting a shitload of food and I'm not losing any more weight. And, and the answers are, are always the same. I'm like, how much are you eating? And if they want to be gaining weight, they're like, oh, a shitload. I'm like five, 6,000 calories a day, which right of the way, like the warning bells start to go off. If you actually knew how much food five to 6,000 calories a day was, it's a lot, especially if it's clean food. Or it'll be, I'm not losing weight fast enough. How much are you eating? Oh, like you know, 1800 or 2200 calories a day. And then right away, you're like, this is, here's the problem. I don't think people understand how like fastidious you have to be when you're tracking your food. Like most people want to do this if it fits your own macros. So like, I'm going to eat 400 grams of carbs, 200 grams of protein and hundred grams of fat. And each day, I can like make up how that goes together. And as long as I stick to those macros, I will get whatever goal I will achieve. I will work towards whatever end that goal puts me towards, whether that, that is an excess of calories that, um, helps me grow mass, or if it's a, a, a reduction or a restriction in calories and it helps me lose fat. 
but I don't think most people actually understand how tight you need to be with this stuff. And I want to give you an example of what happens when you are like microscopically manage the food you intake. And this is why bodybuilder diets are insanely simple. They don't actually have to be. Here's the wake up call for most bodybuilders. There's nothing magic about chicken and rice. What's magic about chicken and rice is that if you eat the exact same amount of chicken and rice every single day, then you can guarantee beyond a shadow of a doubt that your caloric intake is identical day to day. It could be spaghetti and ground beef. It could be all kinds of things. There's nothing like on a molecular level, those carbohydrates are all the same. It doesn't matter, but it's the trackability that matters. So for the last four check-ins in a row, and I check in anywhere from like seven to 10 days. So let's just call it a month. For the last four check-ins in a row, my diet has been an identical diet. I have a training day diet and I have a, um, a non-training day diet. And let's just say to keep things simple that it had been 280 grams of rice and 240 grams of protein on my training day for my five meals and 150 grams of rice and 240 grams of protein on my rest days. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that and it bounces around a little bit more and there's like some meals have a little bit more and some meals, but I'm just... I'm, 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 I'm sharing those numbers because I want to show you that when you're insanely strict, how much difference just moving those actually makes so that when these people tell me I'm eating these numbers and nothing's happening, my only response has to be, you're not, you even, you might even think you are, but the bottom line is you're not being strict enough with yourself to actually make me believe that you're eating that you're that, or you have a thyroid disorder. And if we're going to look at like Occam's razor, like the simplest explanation being the most likely, I vote that you're not tracking your shit tight enough. So last four check-ins in a row, I weighed exactly 267 pounds for a month straight. So what that means is I weigh myself seven, seven, seven days a week. And then I average that over the course of seven days. So one day I might be a pound higher. One day I might be a town lower, but at the end of those seven days, when I average those seven weigh-ins and I send it to my coach, I'm 267 pounds and four check-ins in a row. He left my diet. He goes, and he liked what was happening. We were going through a recomp. So my body weight wasn't moving, but visibly, cause I got to take pictures. He could see that fat was dropping a little bit and and, and muscle mass was going up a little bit. So he was just like, keep doing what you're doing. So four weeks in a row, I'm exactly 267 pounds. Last week, he changes my diet. All he does, okay? On training days, he drops 50 grams of rice from each of my meals. So let's say 250 grams over the course of, of an entire day, which is gonna be about... 70 grams of carbs, which is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 280 calories. That is fuck all when you're 265 pounds, but that's, that's all he changes. And on non-training days, he goes from 150 grams of, of, of rice to 100 grams of rice. So another 50 gram reduction. And he also reduces my protein by 40 grams on those non-training days. And in one week, I lost exactly two pounds. 
Like that's how like scientifically or like accurately or exactly your body responds to a change in your caloric intake when your caloric intake is exactly the same every single day. And then the way you train is exactly the same every single day. So let me just recap that real quick again. Okay. So diet stays the same for four weeks. Weight stays the same for four weeks to the pound within one week of him changing my diet and removing essentially a half a pound of rice every day. I then lose two pounds in one week. Um, and so for all those people who were like messaging me and saying like, I'm not eating, I'm eating this much and I'm not growing or I'm restricting this much and I'm not, and I'm not losing. I would challenge you to be like, to, to challenge yourself. Like how honest are you being with what's going in your body? Cause if you're doing some kind of, it fits your own macros. I guarantee you're leaving calories on the table that you're not accounting for whether that be in the sauces that are going on shit or whatever. It's just, it's not happening because it's a simple mathematical equation. Unless there's some type of hormonal imbalance um, or again, you have some type of thyroid issue, it's just pure math. Anyways, I don't want to, you know, kind of go on and on about this all night because most people won't even give a shit about it. Um, However, um, I do think it's... I wanted to share it because I think it's interesting. And I think, I think people think the body is magic and like, we just put shit in our mouth and we do exercises and like, maybe we get big, maybe we get small. I don't know. Sometimes it works the way I want to. And sometimes it doesn't. And I feel like that robs people of a sense of power over their own body and what they, they look like or feel like, or what they're capable of cardiovascular wise. And it's just like, if there's one thing I want to be able to share with people, it's that like your body will do exactly what you want it to do. If you're reliable and consistent with the way that you treat it. And again, I will challenge you. Are you executing the necessary discipline or are you being as relentless as you really need to be in order to affect change? And I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to feel like I'm dragging people through the coals. Um, And I don't want people to stop asking those kind of questions because I think they're interesting questions and I'm happy to answer, but I thought it was a, it was a good way to illustrate my, my point. Um, okay. Let's jump into the Q and a section. So if anybody's got anything, I've got a bunch from the, from the Q and a that was posted earlier today on my page. I got some people throwing up stuff in the YouTube chat already. If you want to throw up something in the Instagram live, Go nuts. You're all welcome. I'll try to get to as many as I can, and we'll go for maybe another half an hour. All right. Reed says, as an adult onset hunter, I mostly hunt solo in Southern BC. Last season, I bumped a few grizz, and that has been my biggest fear. Do you have any advice hunting around G-bears? Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I do have advice. I've spent a lot of time around grizzly bears. Um, and I do think they are possibly, and this is the funny thing, people are going to overreact, but I want to say really the only actual legitimate thing that I think you should probably be worried about in North America. Black bears, you do not need to be concerned with 
Wolves, I don't think you need to be concerned with. Like, I'm going on, like, basic, you know, statistical likelihood of having an issue. You know, Cougars, I don't, like, yes, I, I like, random things happen all the time. Random people just walk off cliffs all the time, too, because they don't know where the fuck they're going. So it's like, just because there has been an incident doesn't mean it's something that you should exert energy worrying about. Grizzly bears are the one exception to all of that shit. They are 100% worth your concern, your energy, all of it. Now, here's the thing I will say, walking around full of fear, and it doesn't sound like you're full of fear. It sounds like you have like a healthy fear and you've put some thought into this. So, but but just for anybody else who's listening, walking around full of fear and anxiety is one of the worst things that you can do because you're going to make dumb decisions. You don't want to react out of emotion and anxiety. You want to react out of like logic and rational thought. And 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 if you behave in a logical and rational manner, you should be able to get through your entire career as a hunter in the North American mountains and not have a lethal grizzly bear attack. However, people get hit by lightning and meteorites. So yes, something could still happen. But I think I do a lot of solo hunting too. One of my biggest pet peeves in Canada is that we don't have the right to carry sidearms in the mountains. I think, because that would be my single biggest piece of advice for whatever, the other 60% of the North American landmass carry a sidearm because I think that solves like a readily accessible sidearm, I think solves a lot of problems. And I think practicing getting to that sidearm quickly and efficiently and accurately, and a you know, we're talking a 10 mil plus, like a big sidearm, is most of of my my recommendation. Now, when you're solo hunting, I've done quite a bit of solo bow hunting, and it sucks, man, that you can't carry a sidearm because those are the times I'm legitimately like nervous and focused on what's going on is when I'm solo bow hunting because um, those are the times when something could happen. And yes, I've carried bear spray. I will be honest with you, after 15-year career in the forestry industry, I am not a big believer in bear spray. I have seen far more people injured directly from the use of bear spray than I have seen protected, like by a factor of 10 to 1. Like the amount of times people have put bear spray in a tote and then thrown in corks and then put something on top of something and then punctured a thing or went to pull something out of a tote, grabbed the little zip thing and pulled it out and then somebody else stepped on it. Like it's crazy. I once lived with a guy who maced himself. We were living in Winnipeg. It's a whole other story. Who maced himself in his own back pocket And the Yahoo then got in the bathtub, okay, which in effect maced his entire body because he basically sprayed this shit all over his ass, through his jeans, took his jeans off. His ass is now covered in this pepper spray. And then he got in a hot bathtub, which opens your pores, pours on his whole entire body open, and then (laughs) fucking... Pepper spray goes over dude's entire body. And we just hear him screaming from the bathroom. You know, it feels like I've maced my entire body. Um, and of course we like, 
we couldn't stop laughing for hours. Like the dude was one step away from, I'm not going to say that word because the PC police are out in full effect these days. Hang on. Situational awareness is your number one friend when you're in grizzly bear country. So things like walking through really tight vegetation, my spidey sense starts tingling. I hate that. Unfortunately, a lot of hunting in um, British Columbia, you don't have a choice. You're going to be in that that tight veg. Um but if you are, I would recommend, you know, sorry, one sec. If you have to be in that tight veg, I would either have a rifle in hand or have bear spray in hand. I would look for sign. If you're not seeing a ton of grizzly bear sign, like grizzly bears leave sign. They're almost like elk in that way. Like you can't accidentally run into elk 99% of the time. If there's elk around, you will know because they destroy the forest. Like they're just a very heavy hitting animal. Grizzly bear are the same way. They're going to leave tracks. Their shit is gigantic. Nothing that they do could be confused with another animal. Like it is definitely a grizzly bear. So situational awareness, I think, you know, you know, tent prep, I think is a very good conversation to have. I wouldn't. In grizzly bear country, I would not go to sleep with my food. In black bear country, I actively sleep with my food. I sleep with my food on purpose in black bear country. A lot of times because I'm hunting solo. And to be honest with you, what's going to really kill my hunt is me waking up and having all my food gone from hanging on a tree, you know, a hundred yards away from my tent and now I'm stuck in the middle of the mountains and I have no food. I would literally rather fight for my food than hang it. Being in grizzly bear country, that's going to be my exception. I'm, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to go to extreme lengths and I even do two different food bags. Like when I go on my big trips, I take two 25 liter nano dry bags from mech and I split my food in half. And this is the way that I reduce risk. And I will hang those in two different trees in two different places, because that way, if a bear does get one of them, I'm not going to wake up and have literally no food. Um, I feel like there's an, there's an exhaustive or an inexhaustive amount of detail that I could get into here and share about like what to do and what not to do when, when you're around grizzly bears. But ultimately it's that situational awareness. Think to yourself, they could be here, be prepared. Cause here's the other thing. Like I've listened to a lot of podcasts lately about bear encounters and every single one of them happened when those people let their guard down or they were inexperienced with grizzly bears full stop. So their guard was never actually up. But the amount of times you hear people go like, yeah, we were waiting for that bear to come around the corner. And then the bear came around the corner and surprised and like, no, it doesn't happen because when your guard is up and you're ready, you're, you're ready. And you, you know, you, you're, you're able to deal with the situation. It's when you get complacent 
and you let your guard down, you know, keeping your bear spray on your pack and then taking your pack off for lunch and setting it six feet away. You, you essentially have no protection now. So it's things like those and like being vigilant and taking an extra 30 seconds. If you take your pack off, unmount your bear spray from your pack, stick it on your chest harness while you have lunch. Um, Another really simple thing to do that I've had to do multiple times in the past is pick meat caches that are visible from hundreds of yards away. Now, this can be really tricky, but normally it's not that hard and you just have to stop and think about it for a second. Just before you make your meat pole and before you start hanging all your your quarters, just back up for a second and be like, can I see this from where I'm going to be coming from tomorrow when I come to pick up? all this meat. And if like you're in a bunch of trees, like, no, I'm not going to be able to see this at all. I'm literally going to have to be within 10 yards of this meat before I see this meat and be like, okay, stop. This is not good because there could be a bear right in here munching on all my meat and I'm not going to know that. So literally I will look around and I'll look for an opening that I can come down on or get to or glass from two, three, 400 yards away first and look for disturbances. And I'll do things like leave t-shirts draped over, um, meat bags, um, or, 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 or hang things just in such a way that I know what it looks like. So when I come back the next morning, I can tell if it's disturbed, but anyways, definitely a, a long drawn out answer here, but I don't think grizzly bears are a reason to not solo hunt, and I don't think they're a reason to not go into areas at all, but I do think you need to be aware, and you need to take proper precautions, and you need to be vigilant. And what I will close with is if you have some type of aggressive encounter and the bear doesn't just completely exit, I would leave go find a new area because they do have a tendency of kind of behaving irrationally like that. And there's lots of stories of bears coming back two and three times to the same location. So if you have some type of encounter and they're not immediately deciding to leave the area or you see them come back, you know, a second time to reinvestigate, just get out. It's not worth it. Go find another place to hunt because that's the situation when, you could be sleeping in your tent and something, you know, unbelievable could, could happen. Okay. So there's, there's Reed's thing. Okay. Hang on. I got a bunch of questions from, from earlier today. And now I got to see if I can get, give me one second. All right. Bob asks, um, zip off base layers. Do you use them and recommendations? Um, I don't, however, I am kind of curious about them. I tend to be pretty minimal when it comes to my like long johns and stuff. Like I hate getting hot and I hate, I hate getting to that point where you're super sweaty. So I do, I take a lot of action and I, I'm a lot of my decisions. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard was from Giannis on the meat eater. And uh, he was just talking to somebody about hiking and he's like, you should always leave the trailhead cold. And at any time I've ever like, I'm wearing too many clothes, it was always because I was comfortable at the trailhead. So my general, or, or, or your tent in the morning, trailhead is just an analogy for wherever I'm starting to hike from the day. I have always, if I'm comfortable when I start my hike, I'm going to be too hot 
once I get into my hike. So I, instead of having layers that are easily removable that I know I'm going to need to remove anyways, I tend to not wear them at all because I'd rather be cold and then warm into my hike so that by the time I get warm enough, I'm, you know, 10, 15, 30 minutes into my hike. And now I have the right amount of layers on that being said, I think there's lots of situations where some zip off base layers would be really recommended. Um, I can think about glassing situations. If you're going to wake up and sit still all morning and be glassing, you know, it can get, that's probably the coldest I ever get when I'm hunting. And it's because you're just not moving at all and you just get insanely cold. So, um, I think that would be a perfect example of when some zip off base layers, and then you don't have to take your boots off and I get it. It, it can make a lot of sense. And I think, you know, zipper technologies come along a long way. And I think flat lock seams have come a long way because my other hesitation at the type of material or those types of solutions would be, you know, you're creating a lot of opportunity for friction and you're creating a lot of opportunity for things to get bunched up. And that, that would annoy me, but you know, seeing how far all that stuff has come, I don't see why that would necessarily, that wouldn't really concern me anymore. Now, as far as I'm aware, the only two like main players that currently have zip off base layer bottoms are Kuyu and First Light. Now I haven't worn Kuyu in a long time, but in my personal experience, First Light has the nicest feeling base layers of all the major companies. I'll, I'll be honest, their Merino um, composite, like it's a Merino synthetic composite that they use, it feels better even than the Sitka shit. Like it, for actual physical comfort, I think First Light wins that battle. One of my little pet theories is that each major hunting clothing manufacturer has one thing that they knock out of the park. <coughs> First light, I think they knock out of the park Merino base layers. I don't think anybody else does Merino as good as First Light. With Sitka, what I what I think they nail out of the park is like innovative textile layering. They have um, a lot of very interesting. Like, I mean, they're owned by Gore. You can't fuck with Gore. Gore is like so much, like it is orders of magnitude greater in revenue size than probably all hunting clothing manufacturers combined. Like if you look at how many things Gore-Tex are in, so if you are going to try and go toe-to-toe with the R&D budget of a company like Gore, you will lose. Like it's not even a remote competition. Um, Stone Glacier, for me, they're, they're down insulation. You're going to be really hard-pressed to, to compete with that. I think there's a couple things that um, um, Kuyu does extraordinarily well. And in my opinion, I think they're, it's, it's a matter of personal preference. I find as far as quality and technicality, I got to say Sitka and Kuyu tend to be a little bit above 
everybody else. And I wore first light for years and I like the crew at first light. I'm not, I don't want to shit on anybody, but the bottom line is like, look at the rain gear. Like the first light rain gear is just not up to par with Sitka and Kuyu. It's just, I hate to break it to anybody who loves their first light rain gear, but it's not this as good. Um, anyways, I'm kind of going off on a tangent. The pet theory was each company has one thing that they knock out of the park. So I think first light, the Merino is incredibly well, except, you know, my, my buddy here is chiming up and he's got the Kuyu and he loves them. Somebody else thinks they, they stretch a little bit too much. So I think it's going to be, it's going to be personal preference on that one. So long story short, I think zip off base layers could be good. I don't like to rely on them. Um, so I just tend to leave cold. Um, however, I do know Barklow is working on some, but he told me it was going to be at least two years before Sitka released him. So when they release him, if he sends him to me, I'll let you guys know what I think. Um, loops outdoors going to hunt black bears with my bow the first time this year. What's your tactics for closing the distance? Oh, I love this question. And I think, um, this is a, this is an excellent hunt. Like anyone who lives in, in Western North America really should be hunting black bears. Even if black bears are not your, like, you know, they're, they're not the most romantic animal. Like, okay, they don't have big racks. Like I get it. They're not as, as sexy as like an elk and like, they don't get the same, you know, love on, on social media. But here's the thing. You will learn so much about yourself from hunting black bears and you will get so many stalking opportunities when you're hunting black bears and it's right in the off season. So it's like, you haven't hunted elk or deer or, or, or sheep or goat for six months. You're lazy. You're out of shape. You're, you're complacent because you haven't had to stock in on anything. And you get this like two month season where you can just go and learn and learn and learn and learn. And personally, I find the more you hunt black bears, the more you will come to love them. Uh, now they're probably one of my favorite animals to hunt. There's lots of them. You you never feel like, you know, this is, there's no, I have zero moral or ethical issues hunting black bears. It's like, to me, it's the perfect thing to hunt because they're all over the place. They kind of annoy people. I love black bear meat. They're super fun to hunt with your bow. As long as you don't get a little freaked out by bears, I, I don't think you have anything to worry about. Now I am going to share some somewhat could be seen as controversial black bear stalking advice. I tend to be a very aggressive stalker when it comes to black bears, because in my experience, and I'm not an expert, I have killed five, five, four, I've killed four black bear. I've taken two with my bow and two with my rifle. Um, and that's through three years of hunting. One year I got bow. Another year I got a bow. And then last year I doubled up and I took two with a rifle um, on the same night, about 200 yards. Well, 300 yards as the crow flies from each other. Hunts on YouTube. Check it out. 
Um, that's the other thing. Black bear hunts do shit on YouTube. Like nobody watches them compared to like, I have failed sheep hunts that have 10 times the views as a successful double header bear hunt. Again, I don't care. I like hunting them. I like filming them. I'm going to keep putting those videos up. Anyways, here's the thing. I believe in aggressively stalking black bears because in my experience and through talking to people who have a lot more experience than I do, there's a couple things at play. One, they seem to react erratically to pressure, okay? Sometimes they will look up and see you and not give a fuck. Other times they they will like, some spidey sense will kick up. They haven't even made eye contact with you. And the thing is like, bolting at 90 miles an hour off the road and into the timber. And you're like, I didn't even get out of the truck. Like I didn't even shut the truck off. And so in my experience, it's like, I don't know which of those reactions I'm going to get. So I almost pretend like I'm going up against the bear that's more curious than scared. And in that situation, I stalk as aggressively as possible within reasonable limits. Like I'm not going to be an idiot about it. A lot of stalking of black bears happens on roads. This is the other reason you got to be fairly aggressive. Cause it's like, you're not going to deke off into the timber. They're going to hear you bashing around in there. And the way roads work, normally you're trying to catch up when the road curves, they're in one ditch line, you get in the opposite ditch line. And what I like to do as soon as their head drops or as soon as they turn and they're not looking at me, I drop the hammer and I try and cover ground as fast as possible. And then the moment it looks like they're going to look at me or they're going to pick their head up and swing their body back to, I stop, I stop, I kind of crouch and I look at the ground and I don't make any eye contact and I'm normally wearing good camo and I just sit there and I try and kind of look out of the corner of my eye and just keep a bead on the bear without actually making eye contact with the bear. Now, 50-50, he's going to see me in bolt or he's going to like just scan around, not see anything he's concerned about and go back to feeding in the ditch line or whatever he's doing. And then as soon as he drops his head again, boom, I get up and I hammer back out of him. And here's the second reason why I think it's important to hunt bears like this. Or not important, but it's like, I have... There's been situations with with bears where I've like done everything perfectly and it didn't matter. And there's been situations with bears where I did everything wrong and it didn't matter. No other animal behaves like that. Like with a deer, if you fuck it up, you fuck it up. With an elk, if they wind you, they're gone. Like there's no exceptions to that. And with a bear, everything is so erratic that I like, I just need to figure out which bear you are as quickly as possible. Cause if you're the skittish bear, then piss off. I'll, I need to know that as quickly as possible so I can go find another bear. It's kind of like people who aggressively call elk. They're not, they don't think that every elk is going to return the call. They're looking for the one elk that's aggressive enough that day that it wants to play because finding any other elk isn't going to help them because their strategy is to call in aggressive elk that actually want to play. So again, oh, and so the second characteristic that accounts for this erratic behavior is that they're a predator. Tell me another predator that we hunt. 
maybe wolves, but wolves are on such a different level of intelligence that I don't think you can compare them. So what you got to recognize is that most of the stalking philosophies that we have developed have been to hunt prey. And prey are used to being uh, pursued by predators. So you can very easily extrapolate their motivations. Like why are they responding in a certain way? What, what, what behaviors are they most likely to make during certain, um, uh, situations? You can, you can, it makes sense. You cannot then go apply those same, um, conclusions and speculations to a predator. Just because you're hunting it doesn't mean it's prey. It is a predator. It is used to hunting other shit. And so that's why I think like most, literally most, like the two bears I have killed, I literally just walked straight up to. I mean, it was a little bit more complicated than that, but not really. Like in either of those situations, if it had been a deer or an elk, it would have been gone 15 minutes before I even got there. One, I walked up on the um, on, on on railroad tracks and smoked it. The other one I saw from the road, literally stopped my truck, got out of my truck, walk off the road, and and shot it. Like these are not highly technical stocks. So again, I say be aggressive, stalk them sons of bitches. At, at, as much as you can, because it's, it's get that number up, get as many stocks in as you can, because you will find that one, you know, ruddy, aggressive bear that is like more too bold for his own good. Do you know what I'm saying? And he's going to stand his ground and he's going to be like, man, what's this guy? He's got nothing on me. I'm the predator. And then, you know, he's got an arrow through his chest and now who's the smart guy. Um, so anyways, that's my question. And I'm going to do a whole series on black bear hunting. Lander doesn't even know this yet, but, um, he's going to come on the podcast here in the next couple of weeks and he's going to drop all the black bear science because out of everyone I know, he's the man who knows the most about black bear hunting, like by a country mile. Um, okay. What else do we got here? Okay, really good question. Mark asks, now that I have the PRC and the PRC has a break, and my old my other 300 Win Mag has a break as well. And his question is, are you going to be taking your shots with ear protection? I hope so, Mark. <laughs> like I honestly do. And here's why I say I hope so. I have packed ear protection on the last I don't know. Every time I can remember in the last three years hunting animals with my rifle, I've taken ear protection. I have yet to actually put it in when I go to take a shot. And it's nothing more. And this is actually, maybe this is more of an interesting question than it even looks like at first because I take it, but in the heat of that moment, you know, it, it literally just doesn't even occur to me to put it in. And then before I know it, and it's not like, like, listen, sometimes with other things, just before a kill, it'll occur to me and I will consciously make the decision to not do it because I don't want a distraction. You know, I've decided not to turn GoPros on before because like having a successful kill shot was 
of the utmost importance that everything else was willing to, I was willing to sacrifice everything else in order to get that shot. With the ear protection, it's literally one of those things that never even occurs to me. Now, I did buy those around the neck. You know, Remy Warren wears them. They look like um, like construction ear pro, but they go in your ears. So they, they look like the little foamy earplugs, but they fit on the end of like an orange band and you can wear them around the back of your neck. And then I did have a pair of those thinking if I just wore them all the time, I would put them up. But in the back country, you can't because you're constantly like knocking them on things and you got a sweaty neck and it's just, it is just gross. I, I, this has got to the point where I've actually considered, I want one of those little label makers just because I like putting labels on shit anyways. And I was actually going to put a label on my rifle right near the action like right on the stock, right near the action that just said ear pro and then three exclamation points so that every single time I went to rack around, I would have no choice but to see this label staring back at me. And then that would remind me to, to stick my, my ear pro in. So yeah, the answer, the answer is I sure hope I decide to wear my ear pro because I know Shooting that rifle with that break um, multiple times um, is not going to do well. I've lost two in one day. Somebody just posted on Instagram. What did you lose two of? Two sets of ear pro? Or are we still back on the bears? Let me know. I'm curious. Um Okay, we don't have a whole lot of time. We're already over time. Let me pick. Some of these are interesting and we'll save them for next week. Um, ear pros, yeah. Yeah. I've done the same thing. I've lost several. And I used to keep, you know, those little, they come in the little cellophane packs, again, on construction sites. And there's two in there. I used to keep like four or five of those in my bino harness. And again, they'll be there. I just don't think to put them in my goddamn ears. Um, Coach Bob asks for your sheep hunt, what power sources are you going to use? If you have them close by, can you show them thanks? I'm going to have three different power sources. I will have an anchor 20,000 watt, an anchor 10,000 watt, and an anchor 21 watt solo solar charger. Um, and I will use them in a variety of different ways, like either charging the packs and then living off the packs or charging my devices to directly with the solar charger. But especially for a sheep hunt, things like elk hunts, I don't believe solar chargers are as efficient for because you're covering so much ground and you're so active and you're in the timber keeping something exposed to the sunlight for really like the six seven eight hours a day you need to to get a meaningful amount of light um, is not as realistic also with a thing like on an elk hunt I am most likely going to be back to the truck every three to four days because that's the way I elk hunt I bivy hunt I take three four days worth of food I go in, I hunt hard, I come back out, I refuel, I go back in. So it's way more efficient 
to just carry the two the two battery packs, or most likely if I'm going for four days, I'll just carry the 10K. Um, and then swap it out when I get back to the truck or charge it at the hotel for the night if I decide to go to the hotel before going back in. Um, and, and, and then you don't have the extra weight of the solar charger anyways. Um, but on a thing like a sheep hunt where you're going to, there's a very large chance you're going to have several like more uh, permanent camp situations. You're probably going to hike, camp for three, four days, hike, camp for three, four days. So even if you're walking around on the camp days, you can leave that solar charger open. And that's the other reason why I take two battery packs because wake up in the morning, take the solar charger, put in my most empty battery pack and just leave it outside the tent all day. And I will even, you can even have it like hanging under a vestibule if you're worried about it getting rained on. Most of these things are actually pretty waterproof anyways, but, um, and if it's that overcast, don't even bother putting it out because you really need some visible sunlight for these things to work. But, um, get out of your tent in the morning, take the solar charger, Put your one battery pack in the soldier charger, leave it at the tent, go do what you're going to do all day. When you leave camp with you, take your second battery pack and all your devices that may or may not need power. And then, then you just swap those out. So then you've always got a battery pack you're using and a battery pack you're charging. Um, so that's why I always take two battery packs. And I find, and somebody else might ask like, okay, well, why do you take the sizes that you do. Like maybe why wouldn't you take two 10,000s or why wouldn't you take two 20,000s? In all the time I've been doing this, and here's the other thing that I will say, I'm going to use way more power than 99% of the people listening to this because I'm filming everything that I do. So I, I also carry two batteries for my Sony and I carry six GoPro batteries because you know, big joke from GoPro, GoPro batteries suck balls. They last like 50 minutes if, if you're actually using them. Um, oh, and if it gets cold, GoPro batteries die. And oh, every third time you go to use a GoPro battery or whatever, it just won't work. And then you'll put it back in your pouch and then three days later, it will work. Like they are hands down the shittiest batteries on planet earth. So not only do I have to charge everything else everyone else does, your in-reach, your phone, whatever. Um, I'm also charging all my camera batteries all the time. So most people, I would probably recommend two 10Ks. If you're not filming, have two 10,000 milliamp hour or MAH battery packs and then a solar charger. Um, I like the 21 watt anchor. I've run a lot of tests and I've looked at a lot of stats and like, I'm just going to be honest, a lot of these hyped up outdoors, dark Poseidon, horse shit. The anchor shit is just as good, man. And it's like a third of the cost on Amazon. And I, I've used it for years. I did actually want to do a video on battery packs because here's one huge tip. What kills your battery packs is leaving them alone for the off season. Batteries have to consistently have a charge recharge cycle. doesn't mean they don't have to constantly be charging and recharging, but it means they need to be regularly charged and discharged in order for them to continue to function the way they were designed to function. So actually I'll show you something right now. 
show this to everybody on IG first, then on YouTube. This is a 10,000 milliamp hour ultra slim anchor power charger. It weighs 230 grams, so almost exactly half a pound. The 20,000 milliamp hour weighs 340 grams or three quarters of a pound. The benefit um, of the 20,000 milliamp hour is that it's almost 50% lighter per volume of um, energy storage. You're getting 20,000 milliamp hours for three quarters of a pound instead of 10,000 milliamp hours for half a pound. Yeah, I don't know why I give this much of a shit about this stuff either, but I do. Um, but I like the versatility of having a 20 and a 10 because you don't need two 20s. So even though your bang for your buck is a little bit skewed, I still think like this is a, this is a perfect battery pack. And if I wasn't filming, I would tell you to go buy two of these on Amazon. They're like, I want to say they were 45 bucks. Um, but here's what I do in the off season. I always leave one of these on my coffee table. My couch is like right over here. This is my office and my like man cave. That's my TV right there. And so I use this to charge my phone uh, once or twice a week. You know, when I, I haven't kept it plugged in in the truck and I get home and my, my phone's dying and I want to watch TV for the night and I don't have any wall outlets close to my couch. And then after like a month, this thing will be empty. I walk into my shop, which is through those doors over there. The 20,000 milliamp hour is sitting on a charger. I take it off. I put the 10,000 on the charger and I bring the 20,000 milliamp hour and I sit it on the coffee table. And so over the, when in between my hunting trips, each of my battery packs is probably going to be charged and discharged. I don't know, maybe one to two times. It has completely rejuvenated the lifespan that I get out of my battery packs. Whereas what happens, I would get back in September and it would sit in storage. And then who knows, maybe for most people, they don't come out until next fall. If you leave one of these in a box for 10 months, you're going to pull it out and it's going to be shit. And it might not look like shit right away, but you're going to use it once or twice and then it's going to stop working correctly. So there's the tip for the day. You got to charge and discharge those things in your off season. Um, all right. That's, there's more questions coming in, but unfortunately that's all we got time for tonight. If somebody logged in late and you're interested, this will be posted on the podcast channel um, tomorrow morning, probably pretty early. Um, I get up around five and I'll edit this and throw it up probably by six tomorrow morning. So here's the deal. Greatly appreciate any way you can engage with the podcast, like, comment, share, subscribe. If you want to really financially support the podcast, go to mindfulhunter.com slash shop buy a t-shirt or a hat that helps out, like really helps out. Um, somebody bought, um, some merch last week and I apologize. I got really sick for a couple days last week and just checked out of life basically in general, but I got my shit back together. Your stuff is going to go in the mail tomorrow. 
If anybody has any questions, comments, feedback, I'd love to hear it. You can DM me on Instagram or uh, shoot me an email, j at mindfulhunter.com. Other than that, greatly appreciate everybody showing up tonight. I think these Monday night live streams are are gaining some traction and um, yeah, awesome. So thank you very much for, for checking it out. Thanks for all the support. And as always, thanks for tuning in.